During this Easter season, we are asking the question, how do we experience eternity now? And when we look at this verse that we just read just a few moments ago, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly, there are three things I want to talk about in relation to this question. The first is that these words here speak about experiencing eternity now. The second thing is, these words arrived here in 2023 after a very long journey to get here. And number three, if we can understand this journey that these words took, then I believe that we can better understand how these words speak about eternity now. So I'm asking you this morning, will you go with me on a journey? Oh, that's pretty enthusiastic. That's better than I expected. Let's go 2,000 years ago back to Jerusalem, which looked like this at that time. Now, we don't know necessarily where this story unfolds, but Jesus is somewhere in the city when he comes across a blind beggar in the previous chapter, and he heals him. And as he heals him, the blind beggar comes back to him, and he says these words to the beggar, I came into this world for judgment, so that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. Now, there were some religious leaders who heard this that did not like these words, And if this story was being told today, it would be told about Christian pastors like me who overheard these words and said, hang on a minute, are you calling us blind, Jesus? To which Jesus would respond to these religious leaders in the text, if you were blind, you would not have sin, but now that you say we see, your sin remains. In other words, Jesus is talking about the sin of self-righteousness, and if you think to yourself, well, I don't struggle with that sin, my friend, you do. That's the big tell right there. If you're like, no, no, it's not a problem for me, that's when you know you got a problem. Right after this verse, we then go right into what Daisy and Donna and Chris just read, which was this story or this parable or this metaphor about sheep and gates and thieves and walls and all of these things. And he wraps up that story by saying, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Now, the word abundantly is translated from the Greek word parasos. Let me hear you say parasos this morning. Now, what we have to remember as modern Christians is that Jesus most likely never said parasos. And the reason we get parasos is a bit of a story. What we know is that Jesus was speaking most likely Aramaic when he was speaking to these church leaders, right? And as he was speaking to these religious leaders, he said the words about parasos, translated into Aramaic because that was his original language. And there was someone who was there that was an eyewitness to all this, the disciples, specifically the disciple John. Now, John then went with Jesus and continued to follow him around and continued to do his best to follow Jesus' teachings until about a year or two later when Jesus was crucified and then Jesus was buried and then all of a sudden Jesus rose from the dead. Now, from there, the disciples saw Jesus with their own eyes, risen from the dead. They went out and told the world that Jesus was resurrected. We talked about this last week, but let's talk specifically about John for a moment, shall we? Because John was the youngest of all the disciples. And for the next 60 plus years of his life, John then goes and tells stories about Jesus and what he saw firsthand. Then sometime around the year 90 CE, John sits down and he decides he's going to write his gospel. 
Now, there's a bit of a debate in the scholarly community as to whether or not John actually wrote this, because he'd have to be at least 80 at this point, or whether or not John dictated it to somebody who then wrote it down, or whether a disciple of John wrote it. But for today's sermon, we're just going to assume that John wrote it as a very old man. Now, notice what happens here. For over half a century, John's stories about Jesus only existed as oral tradition. So when John actually puts pen to paper or pen to papyrus in this specific instance, he's remembering stories from 60 years ago. Now, I've never had this experience of trying to remember a story from 60 years ago. I'm not that old yet, right? But I will tell you, I struggle to remember details from stories six years ago, right? Especially pre-pandemic. What on earth happened back then? I can barely wrap my head around it, right? Now, this raises the question that all of us should ask. Why didn't John write his gospel closer to the actual events of the life of Jesus? After all, we could get more details right. Did John actually remember the words of Jesus 60 years later, or did he start to, you know, fudge things a little bit, right? Did he start to finesse the words in order to be more poetic? It would be more convenient if he wrote it right after Jesus was resurrected from the grave, right? Why didn't John write his gospel closer to the actual events of the life of Jesus Christ? And the answer to that question, we believe, is a bit of a tragic answer. Because we believe that John and all the other disciples thought that Jesus was coming back in their lifetime. And they only started to write things down when they started to give that hope up. And so toward the end of his life, John is the last living disciple and he looks around, he's like, well, no one's told my story. And so he sits down and begins to write his story in the life of Jesus. And he doesn't write it in Aramaic, he writes it in Greek. Now, why would John write it in Greek instead of Aramaic? The answer is because more people speak Greek than Aramaic. Now, Aramaic would have been a lot more accurate, right? But the fact is John wanted this story to not be for a small select few, but for everyone. So for John, it was way more important to be inclusive with the story of Jesus than it was to be accurate. Something I think the church can learn from to this day. Now, G, now, John wrote this story back around 90 CE, and what's fascinating is about 60 years later is when it starts to intersect with modern human history. To show you how it intersects with what we are doing today, you can take a trip to Manchester, which is in the United Kingdom, and go to this building, the John Rylands Research Institute and Library. If you go inside this building, it will look like this, rather breathtaking, might I say. And right there in the middle, on the bottom floor, you'll come across this piece of papyrus that is about the size of a credit card. Now, this may seem insignificant to you, but this is a big deal because this is Ryland's papyrus P52. And if you did not know this before, archaeologists are terrible at naming things. <laughs> now, this papyrus, smaller than a credit card, dates back to 150 CE, and on one side, it contains John chapter 18, verses 31 to 33, and on the other side is verses 37 and 38. This is the oldest fragment of the New Testament that we have today. And you can go to Manchester and see it in this glass case, which raises the question, how on earth did it get to Manchester, right? And the answer is, in 1920, a man named Bernard Greenfell traveled to Egypt, he heard that the Egyptians were selling scrolls they found in the sand, 
And he bought as many scrolls as he could. He brought them back with him to England, and he discovered among those scrolls that he purchased, Ryland's Papyrus P52. And while this is fascinating and it's important for us to pay attention to this, it's also important to acknowledge that these words about Jesus speaking abundance are not on this fragment. Instead, they represent a larger manuscript that we've lost that contain those words and is from about 60 years after John wrote his original manuscript. You see, we believe this is a copy that was received and given by people who lived after John, who felt like there was something valuable in writing John's story again and giving it to another. Now, the story continues, and you can actually participate in the story if you take a trip to Geneva, Switzerland. And if you get there, you can go to this library, the Bodmer Library. And in the Bodmer li Library, if you were to go there, it looks like this inside. And somewhere in its recesses, I don't think it's on display, you could come across this manuscript here. Now, this is called Papyrus 66. It dates from 200 CE, and it is the most complete early collection we have of John's entire gospel. Now, there are a few portions missing, which people think uh, Christians came along and added the, filled in the holes later, but it's almost entirely intact, and it's from just about 100 years after John wrote his original gospel. Now, this is the oldest gospel copy of any New Testament gospel we have, and it's also the oldest complete book that we have of any book in the New Testament, which raises the question, how did it end up in Switzerland? Well, in 1952, a team of archaeologists went to Mount Jabal Abu Mana in Egypt, and they were digging around in the sand, and they came across this manuscript in the sand. It was in such good condition, the pages were still bound together. They could not believe that it was actually sitting there as a complete book by itself. And if you go through this, you realize that this is the earliest contents we have of John chapter 10, verse 10, and that is these Greek words right here, which translates into, I came so that they might have life and have it abundantly. Now, this is not the end of the journey for the words because we didn't have this until 1952, might I remind you. In order to understand how the words got to us before 1952, you can take a trip to a place called the Vatican, which is kind of a big deal within Christian history. And there you can go to St. Peter's Basilica, and you can go into the, uh, the Christian church's archives where they have all sorts of wonders, some of which you can see, some of which you cannot see. Now, every now and then they'll bring this thing out, and this thing is very important in Christianity because it's the Codex Vaticanus, and it dates from about 350 CE, and it's nearly the entire Bible. There's a couple of books that are missing from it. In my opinion, there are books that were it would be better off if they were stayed missing, but that's okay. We can all get along here, and it's the oldest copy of the Bible we have, which raises the question. How did it end up in the Vatican? We have no idea. Because in the 15th century, the Vatican was like, we need to start archiving stuff. And so they just put stuff in there without cataloging where it came from. And so we think it either came from Caesarea in modern-day Israel, or it came from Rome itself, or it came from Alexandria in modern-day Egypt. But it stayed there for the last 500 years and is the oldest copy of the Bible that we have. Now, another way that these, these words got to us, you'd have to take another trip to a place called Adwa, Ethiopia, and it's here that you can visit a monastery that looks like this. It's the Abba Garima Monastery, and it's just a few miles outside 
of Adwar. Now, if you go inside, you'll see all sorts of displays and things put in cases because this monastery has been in existence for over 1,600 years. Now, there's one particular display that's really fascinating to the archaeological and scriptural communities, and that is this book here. This is known as the Garima Gospels, and it dates back to 500 CE. And it's all four Gospels, they're in two volumes, and it's written in the language of Gez, which was the native tongue of that day and age. Now, this is gorgeous. If you look at these pictures, these are illustrations from 1,500 years ago. And it's the earliest copy we have of illustrated Gospels, which raises the question, how did it get here? Well, this one, the people of Ethiopia translated the Bible into their own language, and then they just kept the Bible with them for 1,500 years. Not only that, but there was 500 years of Islamic occupation, and they were able to hide this manuscript and then bring it back out once they felt like it was safe. And this book has stayed in this monastery from generation to generation to generation for 1,500 years. And so when you look at these early origins of where Scripture comes from, it makes us realize that these artifacts are the earliest links we have to the original written story of Jesus saying, I have come so that you might have life and have it abundantly. But what's important for us to also acknowledge is that this is not how most Christians experience John's stories about Jesus. Instead, Christians often told one another the stories about Jesus. And the stories of Jesus lived in their minds and in art pieces, or more commonly, across a table breaking bread and drinking from the cup. And so for thou over a thousand years, Christians remember the stories of Jesus not by opening their Bibles because it was too expensive to own a Bible, but instead through the sacrament of communion and through the beauty of telling one another a story that matters to you about the life of Jesus. Now this all changed in 1454 when a guy named Johannes Gutenberg developed the printing press and put it into production. This allowed them to build or make books at a very quick rate. This led to 1526, a guy named William Tyndale translating the Bible into English for the first time. And the difference with this translation was they could distribute it at a rapid rate. Then along came Martin Luther in 1534, who translated the Bible into German. Two guys from Sweden named Olaf and Lars translated the Bible into Swedish. And then in 1873, a guy named Manrique Leave came along and translated the Bible into Pangasin. And it's here that this was one of the first Bibles, or the very first Bible, that was translated into a dialect in the Philippines. Then in 1898, Don Poblate came along and he translated the first Bible into Tagalog, which was later picked up by the Philippine Bible Society. I tell you all of this because it's important for us to re realize that a translation is worthless unless someone reads the translation, right? Doesn't matter. You can translate all you want, but if no one reads it, who cares? So here comes along Don Poblate. He translates the Bible into the Ang sorry, Ang Biblia, and four people read it in particular. That would be Eugenio, Jovita, Resurrection, and Paterno. And you may wonder what it is that these people have in common they share a common granddaughter named Kimberly. <laughs> and Kimberly absolutely loved her grandparents, and she has vivid memories of her grandfather Paterno reading the Bible ad nauseum. This guy read the Bible all the time. And while he would read it sometimes in English, he would also read it in Tagalog. Now, 
These parents eventually gave birth to their children, which was Edwin and Ruth. They got together. They had four kids of their own. I have one that's a favorite of those four. <laughs> and that they, while they raised these kids, they often told them the value of the Bible and the stories that were contained within. Now, this is only half the story of where I'm leading you. Because while we have these translations that went to the Philippines, the translations that stayed in Europe had a direct impact on my life because I am composed of German and Swedish and British heritage. And this is a picture of Henry Gilbert Hadley and also um, Alfred and Grace Olson. And they, Alfred and Grace Olson have roots in Sweden. Meanwhile, Henry Gilbert Hadley has roots in Germany and Britain. And right here, this guy, Henry Lee Hadley, eventually grew up into this guy here. And when he grew up into this guy, all of a sudden, things started to change for my life personally. Not only that, but Alfred and Grace had a child named Roland who grew up and looked like this guy. Now, Henry married Bonnie, and they had all sorts of grandchildren that set the bar on style things. <laughs> I know, right? Right? And then Roland married Rosella, and Rosella is my grandmother who I talked about last week, and sure enough, this guy eventually would meet this girl, and they would start dating. And we started dating, and shortly thereafter, we got married, and we are just so happily married. We just said, let's have some kids. We had two kids, Maya and Bodhi. And they are here today, and I believe this is the first time they've ever heard these words, which is, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. And if you think about it, hitting their ears right now, we have to acknowledge for a minute that these words have been on a journey to get to Maya and Bodhi today, right? A journey. And you have to think about all the people who read translations and found value in the translations that they read. And all the conversations that happened around family mealtime and all the priorities that had to be made and how this was all handed from one generation to another. And I look back and all of these people valued scripture. Not only that, but you have to get into translations and manuscripts and people who risk their lives in order to make sure that more people could have the Bible. And it all is leading up to this point where I can share this with my kids today. And I tell you this because I look at all that had to happen for us to read John chapter 10, verse 10, and I have to tell you, this is the experience of eternity for me. This is what it means to experience eternity now. Now, at some point, somebody may stand up and say, wait a second, Craig, you're not thinking about my story. After all, my family didn't grow up in church. I'm the first Christian. So I hear you talking about how all your family worked together so that you could have these words. That's not my experience, to which I would say, you're right. It's not. Now, another person might stand up and say, Craig, I came from a tough home. I'm on my own. I don't have parents I can turn to because my parents were terrible people. To which I would say, I'm sorry, and I'm right. I am talking about something different. But also, I want you to know something about this story of eternity as well. Eternity is bigger than the Christian tradition, Amen. and it's also bigger than your own family. Amen. And to show you what that means, I think that all of us, regardless of what tradition we belong to or what family we came from, all of us experience eternity every time we receive wisdom from our elders, allow that wisdom to change how we live today, 
and then strive to pass on that wisdom to those who are younger than us. That's what it means for all of us to experience eternity, and Christian doesn't have a monopoly on this, does it? Now, let's talk about church. Let's say you're the first person to go to church in your family. In fact, there's a lot of tension in your own family because you've decided to go to church and your family would really wish that you did not go to church, right? If this is you and you're saying, how do I participate in eternity in a way that honors my ancestors and my parents specifically, I would say, what is it that you value about what your parents gave you? What is it they taught you? What is it that they showed to you? What is it they demonstrated that you say is valuable? Well, those things that they demonstrated and embodied are things that you can pass on to your kids. Not only that, but they can shape the way that you live today in a way that keeps their memory or their active presence alive in your life today. So this idea that you can only experience eternity if it's got religious jargon on it is just false. You may never mention the name Jesus and still be living in the experience of eternity. Now, let's say you come from a broken home, right? And your, your parents were just objectively terrible people. Well, if that's the case, you can still experience eternity because my guess is there was someone who was older than you that cared about you at some point, right? And they either took you in or they made sure they looked out for what you were doing or they always showed enthusiasm when they talked to you about who you were and who you were becoming. And this person who was older than you could have been an uncle or it could have been a grandparent, or it could have been a friend's parent, whatever it was, there is someone who is older than you that most likely cared about you and cared about you in a generous way. Well, you can keep that person alive by reminding yourself of the wisdom they gave you. You can keep that person alive by telling your kids about this person and what they gave to you. And this person was under no relational obligation to be generous and kind to you, And yet, you still live in a way that experiences eternity because someone who came before you gave you something that you live by today that you want to pass on to the people who will live after you. This is what it means to experience eternity. And while my picture and my understanding of eternity looks like this, yours may be different, which is great because eternity is so much bigger than just what I have experienced firsthand. So when I think about all of these people and all that it took to get these words to me, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I also approach the scripture with a whole lot more reverence, don't I? I've got a deeper appreciation because all of a sudden you think about all these people and the way, shape, and form they gave forward in order to make sure that someone else had this. I then read this and I am filled with just this overwhelming sense of gratitude and love. Because this right here is wisdom handed down from generations before us that can shape the way I live today, and it's very much how I want my kids to live going forward. So to talk about that, we have to acknowledge that there is a big difference between abundance and greed. Now, Christians don't like to talk about greed a lot, even though I have seen lots of Christians, myself included, who struggle with this. And when I read Jesus' story about the thief and the sheep and the gate and the shepherd, I read the story and think that the thief is a metaphor for greed. Because greed, according to Jesus, steals. Greed kills. And greed destroys. This is very different than abundance. Abundance is grateful. 
Abundance is peaceful, and abundance is love. I want to illustrate what abundance is and how it's different than greed. And in order to do that, I have to date myself a little bit, okay? I was old enough to remember when this thing came out. This is a Walkman, right? And I remember when the Walkman came out, and all of a sudden you could listen to music without disturbing other people, something we've lost the value of today, by the way. (laughs) Now, the Walkman eventually turned into the Discman, and I actually owned this Discman player, um, but it wasn't very good because it didn't have ESP. Does anybody remember what ESP stands for? Yes, sir, electronic skip protection. Yeah, you're old too. It's great. (laughs) And kids, if you don't know what electronic skip protection is, you probably don't ever need to know. Now, what's hard for the modern generations to understand is when we traveled, we didn't just take this with us. We took this with us as well, right? And when we travel, we'd be like, oh, let's my, I got to get my carry-on. It's my CDs, right? This all changed in 2001 when this guy was delivered to the masses by way of Steve Jobs, the iPod. And all of a sudden, the whole tagline was, you can have a 1,000 songs in your pocket. This is smaller than a disc bin, and it allows you to bring all your songs with you. And while this looks elegant in design, and I still think it holds up to this day, what's not pictured here is the other necessary component to this iPod, which looks like this. You had to have one of these if you got an iPod, because it went into your tape deck, and you listened to the worst quality audio possible in order to listen to your iPod. Now, this may not make sense to some of the younger folks here, but just try to stay with me. When this iPod was released to the masses, it was an experience that is hard to describe to this day. Because what would happen is, I would have an iPod in my car, somebody would sit in the front seat, they would see the iPod and they said, you have an iPod? Cool! And they'd start to scroll through the song and they'd find a song and they'd say, oh, I love this song, and they'd start to play it. But what would they do while that next song was playing? Keep looking. They'd start to look for the next song. And usually they would find it before the end of the current song. And so all of a sudden they'd be like, oh, well, I want to listen to this one now. And they'd play it mid-song. They'd start a new one. And before we could even enjoy that, they were already looking for the next one. And when the iPods first came out, we all heard the first 24 seconds of every song on the iPod (laughs) and never the rest of the two minutes that were in the song, right? All of a sudden, we had a thousand songs with us at all times, and yet it was harder than ever to listen to one song all the way through. It was really hard to get all the way through just one song. And for me, this is the difference between greed and abundance. Because greed always desires a better song than the one song that is currently playing. And abundance listens to the song that is currently playing and feels that there is more than enough riches in just that one song. Now, we've talked about iPods and Discmen and Walkmen, but let's talk about your life now, shall we? When it talks about who Jesus is and this wisdom that's been given to us from all these generations before, Jesus says to us, I have come not so that you can have greed dictate all your desires, but that you might view life as something abundant and live abundantly. And for me, the best definition I've come across for what it means to live abundantly is found in Anthony Doerr's novel, Cloud Cuckoo Land. And in that novel, he says, the world as it is, is enough. You see, abundance isn't the idea that we need more. Abundance is the awakening to realize that we have been blessed beyond measure 
and it is a rare and beautiful thing to be in existence on this planet. So this is what Christ desires for all of us. And when Jesus says, I have come to this earth so that you might experience life abundantly, what he's saying is, if my ways, if my teaching, if my church, if my Bible, if any of it leads you to be a more greedy person, you aren't following me. If it leads you to destroy other people, you aren't following me. If it leads you to be angry and suspicious of other people, you aren't following me. You want to know how you know you're following me? Would you describe your life as abundant? Would you describe your experience as something that is blessed beyond measure? And while we often think to ourselves, man, if that one relationship was fixed, then everything would work out, Jesus would say, no. Your life as it is, is enough. If we've ever thought to ourselves, oh man, if I could just get that title or that promotion, then everything would work out, Jesus says, no. Your life as it is, is enough. If you think to yourself, man, if I just had their life, then I would be so much happier, Jesus would say, no. Your life as it is, is enough. And to live abundantly is to be able to say to yourself, my life as it is, is enough. And this is wisdom generously given by all these generations before us. And it is something that I try to live my life by to this very day. And when I think about what I wish for my kids that I love with my whole heart, it would be that they experience life abundantly. That they would experience life in a way that they find that they have a good life, that they can be enjoyed, and they can also enjoy others around them. My hope is that they will live in a way that is life abundant. And that is how I experience eternity now. My friends, may you experience eternity now by receiving the wisdom of your elders with gratitude. May you experience eternity now by living in a way that is different today because of the wisdom you received. May you experience eternity now by passing on your wisdom to those who are younger than you. And may you trust the words of Jesus and experience life abundantly. And may your life abundantly help you to see that your life as it is, is enough. Amen.